0: Uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, we are going to celebrate communion today. That's something. Where am I allowed to be? I don't want to knock into anything. Um, that is something we do here at Hope Community Church. We celebrate communion. We do that because, uh, basically, the short answer is because Jesus commanded His followers to do that. Um, but often, when I'm asked about our church and you know what we're like as a church, what we do as a church, I mention the fact that we don't do a whole lot of ritualistic stuff here at Hope. We don't observe a whole lot of rituals. And whenever I explain that to somebody, you know, sometimes I'm talking to somebody in person or I get a phone call or somebody, you know, they'll, they'll find out about our church on the internet and they'll send me an email they'll want some information. Whenever I say that we don't observe a lot of rituals, I always try and, and compliment that statement by saying, not that there's anything bad with ritual. Rituals aren't bad. We're not opposed to rituals here at Hope Community Church. It's not like that's our position. Rituals are bad. No, rituals are great. Rituals are fine. Rituals can be awesome. But the thing is about any kind of ritual you observe, whether it's a baptism or, or, a, or a dedication or a, or a marriage ceremony or a responsive reading. Have you been to churches like that when they do a responsive reading where a leader says something and everybody says something back? All these different ritual things can be great, but the only meaning that a ritual has is the meaning that you give to it. That's the thing about rituals. The only meaning that it has is the meaning that you give to it. And so we're not against rituals here, but we are opposed to empty rituals, we don't observe these things without thinking about what they mean and, and actually having some conversation about, well, why are we doing the stuff that we're doing? Why do we observe these rituals. As I mentioned, we are going to have an opportunity to receive a communion today. And, and when you look at the ritual of communion, the celebration of communion, it's called different things. It's called the Lord's Supper. It's called the Eucharist. It's just called communion simply or breaking bread. When we look at what's behind this, there's a, there's a very intense and wonderful history leading up to why in the present day followers of Jesus celebrate communion. For many of us who have been Christians for a long time, when you think about communion and the Lord's Supper, we think about the last night that Jesus was with his disciples before the crucifixion, where he started this whole thing. But actually, if you look at the history of, of why we celebrate the Lord's Supper, why we celebrate communion, you have to go all the way back in time. You have to go much further back in time than just at that, that last supper. We've got to go all the way back to the time of Adam and Eve. There's so much history, really, leading up to why we celebrate communion today. When you go back to Adam and Eve, the first people who lived, the first humans that walked the face of the earth, when you go back and when you look at their story, even if you've never, never read the book of Genesis, you know some pieces of their story. You've heard some pieces of information about Adam and Eve. And one thing we know about Adam and Eve is that they sinned. They broke God's rule. God gave them boundaries to live within. God gave them a rule, don't eat from that tree." They sinned. They, they experienced this fall. It's a big, dramatic, complicated thing where sin entered into the world. Sin entered into their lives. And part of, of what happened to them is they realized they were naked. You remember learning about that? Did Adam and Eve? And I remember learning about that as a child thinking they were naked. What were they doing naked? And so they learned that they were naked and they tried to cover themselves up with some leaves or whatnot. And so God intervenes in that moment. And God sees the mess that they have made. And God does something for Adam and Eve. And it's, it's a very brief little verse. In fact, if, if you're not paying attention, you might miss this verse. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, we're told that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife. And he clothed them. And there's something really significant about that. They messed up. But God intervened and he covered them. That means that God himself, the Lord God Almighty, took some some kind of animals, some innocent animals, and killed them and slaughtered them and allowed their blood to be shed, and then took the skins and covered Adam and Eve and gave them some kind of clothing. Interesting. Interesting. So we move on in history, we move on, we're still in the book of Genesis, and we learn about a man named Abram, God later renames him Abraham, and we learn about this special calling that God puts on his life. And by the way, God has put a special calling on all of our lives, but Abraham's unique calling, he was going to be the father of a great nation, and God promises Abraham that, that through his descendants, they would be a, not only would they be a great nation, but they would be a blessing to all people. And God makes this covenant with Abraham. Covenant's not a word that we use a whole lot. This deal, this arrangement with Abraham. He promises that he's going to do this thing through Abraham. And then he commands Abraham to do this very strange thing. In Genesis 15, uh, verse 9, God commands Moses. He says, bring me a, a heifer and a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And then we read on about what Abraham does. He takes all these animals. This is so strange. But he cuts all these animals in half It's kind of grisly. He kills these animals, cuts them all in half, and then lays out this weird runway of slaughtered animals, and and one half of the animals on this side, the other half of the animals on this side. And so this this is very strange to us, but this was a custom back in that day, that when two people would enter into some kind of an agreement, some kind of deal, some kind of covenant, they would do this thing, and then they would start at opposite ends of the lane and meet each other in the middle. I don't know if they'd shake hands or do a little dance. I don't know. But they would meet each other in the middle. And it was a way of making a deal. It was a way of making an arrangement, a covenant, an agreement. And the idea was, if one of us breaks the covenant, this, this agreement, this arrangement, if one of us breaks this deal, may what's happened to these animals happen to me. If I break the deal, cut me in half, basically. And so God says, we're going to make a deal. You know about this deal? So we cut all the animals in half, lays the runway. But God himself does not meet Abraham in the middle. God walks the full lane and makes it all the way to Abraham. Abraham doesn't move. Abraham stays put, and God journeys to him. And that was God's way of saying to Abraham, this is me. This is all on me. There is nothing you can do to thwart my plan. There's nothing you can do that will stop me from fulfilling my promise. This is 100% on me. Such a strange thing we read about in the book of Genesis. These animals and the bloodshed and the sacrifice and God intervening somehow making this promise that he was going to do this thing through Abraham's descendants. No, Abraham, it's not about how great you are or what you're capable of. This is all me. God makes the agreement. We move on in history. We move on to a time where, yes, God indeed did make Abraham into a great nation. Uh, Abraham had a son. His son had a son. They became the Israelites. They became a great people. And through a series of events that you can read about in the book of Genesis, they become a nation of slaves living in Egypt. And that's where we read about a man named Moses. And God uses Moses again. What was so special about Moses? Well, well, it was God. It wasn't Moses. It was God that just used this man again. I, I, I hesitate to tell these stories because I don't want you to think that there's something unique about these people. These are just people that were open to being used by God for mighty things. And so... God works through Moses, and he says, you need to go back to Egypt. You need to free my people. I'm going to use you to rescue the Israelites. I've heard the people crying. I'm not ignoring them. I'm going to save them from slavery. And this strange series of events takes place where Moses goes back and says to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, no, and So then God does this series of, of wonders, this series of miracles, this series of plagues. Have you seen the movies? We used to watch the one with, with Chuck Heston when I was a kid. He does, let my people go. And he does all these miracles, and there's, there's blood in the water. And it was really, as a kid, I'm like, oh, this is really weird. But God does all these things, and yet he also hardens Pharaoh's heart. And so Pharaoh doesn't let the people go. It's very, very strange. But then there's the tenth plague. There's the last plague. This is it. This was going to be it. Moses kept performing. It was really God through Moses performing these miracles, performing these wonders. But then there was the 10th plague, and it was the plague of death. And God said, if you don't let the Israelites go, that God would send his angel of death across the land to wipe out the firstborn sons of the Egyptians. Wow. That's a, that's a, that's a terrible thing. But this is something that God did to show his power, to show what he can do, to show what he's capable of. He did this thing. And God commanded through Moses, he commanded the Israelites, here's what you need to do, Israelites. And he gave them some rules to follow. He gave them some things to do. He said, first off, you need to make some bread so you're ready to go. And so he taught them how to make this bread, and they made this certain kind of bread without yeast. It, you know, yeast takes time to rise, and it's a whole big process. You don't have time for the bread to rise. You've got to make some flat little cracker-like bread, okay? This is my paraphrase, by the way. hope God doesn't talk like that. Make some cracker-like bread. Anyway, make this flat kind of bread, and then God says to the Israelites, you need to take... A innocent animal a goat a lamb without defect and slaughter that animal and then you need to take the blood of that lamb and you need to use it as like a paint and paint over your door frame and so when my angel of death death sweeps through the nation of israel you will be spared that angel of death will pass over your homes and you will be spared now why did god command his people to do this do you think the angel of death was confused? Oh, worship. No, the angel of death knows. God knows where to go. But he had the people observe this, this ritual anyway, to do this thing with the blood, because he was trying to show them something and trying to teach us something. A life of an innocent, an innocent lamb, a perfect lamb, was given up. And the blood was used to save, to redeem the people. And so they had their flatbread, their bread without yeast, and they put the blood of the lamb at the door, and they just waited for their redemption, waited for God to show up. There was nothing they could do. How can we contribute? No, you just wait for God to show up. And so God does show up. Moses does lead the people out of Egypt And once they get out of Egypt, they they have no king, they have no rules, they have no pharaoh. What's going on next? And God gives the people the rules. And, you know, you've seen the movie The Ten Commandments, and that's The Ten Commandments. And Chuck Heston comes down with the big stone tablets, and that's great. But it's more than just Ten Commandments that God gave his people. There were 613. I mean, they're the big ten. But there's a total of 613 laws that God gave his people, boundaries that they were to live within. Why did God give people all these rules? He was their king. He was their president. He was their everything. He was their God. He said, live within these boundaries for your own good. That's how God is. He gives us rules to live within for our own good. But then built into into this, this system of law, God commands them to observe certain rituals and certain holidays. And He says, you need to remember. You need to remember how I redeemed you. How I rescued you out of Egypt. And he says, you need to celebrate this feast of unleavened bread. You need to celebrate a Passover festival. When you remember that I passed over your homes by the blood of the Lamb, I passed over you and I redeemed you and I saved you. You need to celebrate these things. Also, built into the law. And this is so, this is God. You know, this is God being a genius. You know, this is God in his cleverness. This is God and his wisdom. Built into the law was this sacrificial system, Right? where God commanded the people. And basically, this is what God said, and don't take this wrong. God said, okay, I'm giving you all these laws to live within, but when you fail, here's what you do. When you fail to live up to my standard, here's what you need to do. And that might sound like, well, don't you believe in us, God? But no, no, it's not about that. God just knows the weakness of the human spirit, and he knows about the human condition. He knows about our sin nature, and he said, I know I'm giving you these 613 laws, but when you mess up, I'm going to give you a way to make things right. And so it gives them this sacrificial system, and you can read all about that in your Old Testament. You can read all about that specifically. There's 17 chapters in Leviticus. The first 17 chapters of Leviticus outline this sacrificial system. But the idea was that you would take an animal to be slaughtered, and that animal would pay the price for your sin. It was this atoning sacrifice. And so people would try their best to observe the law and they'd fall short of God's standard and they'd take this animal and they'd bring it before a priest and they'd put their, their hand on the head of that innocent lamb or the ram and they'd watch it slaughtered and they'd watch the blood spill. And there wasn't anything magical. There's, it wasn't like a trance. Well, my sin is going on to the animal and that animal. It was a symbolic gesture to realize that there had to be a price paid for sin. And so that happens then. Now, much later on, after the resurrection of Jesus, his crucifixion, after his resurrection, Paul tells us about the Old Testament law. And Paul tells us that part of the point of that Old Testament law, this is in Romans chapter 3, it tells us that a big point of that whole law was just to show us how weak we are and how incapable we are of following God's law. Part of the law was to make us conscious of our own sin nature. And so that's God knowing. He knows who we are. He knows our limits. He knows our restrictions. He knows we live in a broken world. He knows we live with the condition of sin. So he established that law, and that makes us aware of our sinfulness. And so then we go through all this, these crazy ups and downs that God has with the nation of Israel. They have this tumultuous relationship, right? It's kind of an unhealthy relationship where the Israelites or the, the Hebrews or the Jews are all the same group of people where they have this thing where they love God and they're devoted to God and then some time passes and they're thinking, well, what's God done for us recently? And they see these other nations celebrating or serving or worshiping these fake gods and so they start to worship the fake gods and when they worship the fake gods, everything falls apart in their community. Everything falls apart in the nation. Like, oh wait, well, let's go back to God. And so they go back to God. It's this yo-yo relationship that they have with God. And whenever they turn back to Him, God receives Him. So we get to a point in history where the nation of Israel has divided into two different nations. One kept the name Israel. The other was called Judah. And God sends prophets to Israel and to Judah. And He sends a man named Jeremiah to Judah. And not a lot of people listen, like nobody listened to Jeremiah in his time. Well, I mean, at the very beginning of his ministry, some people listened to him. But God gave Jeremiah all this information, gave him these messages to share. I mean, that's what a prophet is, one who speaks for God. So he gave Jeremiah all this insights, so and we have the book of Jeremiah in our Old Testament. And one of the things that, that God told Jeremiah about was a, was a new covenant, a new deal. I'm going to read some of Jeremiah for you. I'm looking at Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning with verse 31. So this is God speaking to the prophet Jeremiah. He says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, "Well, I will make a new covenant with the people. I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. You know, God already had this covenant, this deal with, with the Israelites. Where like, Here are your laws to follow, and then when you fail, you, you sacrifice an animal. This is going to be a new kind of covenant. He said, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor to say to one another, know the Lord, because all will know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sin no more. And so God begins to unveil this, this plan that is it's terribly mysterious at this time. Talking about a new deal, a new agreement, a new covenant so Jeremiah spoke these words, and he wrote them down And without fully understanding what this new arrangement will look like, what this new... Do, how, how are you going to do this, God? How are you going to forgive the sins? How are you going to look upon the sins no more? How, how is this going to be? And so over the centuries, people in the Israelite nation, they, they would talk about this from time to time, and they would hear the words of Jeremiah read when they gathered together to worship, and they'd wonder, what is, what, what is this new covenant? What is the new deal? And some people would hear the words of the new covenant and say, well, it's just God. and it's, you know, He's just talking about something. No, who knows? But other people would really wrestle with this. What is God talking about? A new covenant? We have an old covenant. What, what is the new covenant? What is it going to happen? What is this going to look like? What's this new arrangement going to be? And so we move forward in the timeline. We arrive at the birth of Jesus. We arrive at the, the ministry of Jesus and as an adult Jesus goes to minister and, and if you've spent any time in, in a Sunday school situation you might remember that there's this occasion where Jesus is baptized by John. Do you remember hearing about that? Do you ever, so there's this guy named John the Baptist who was a relative of, of Mary the mother of Jesus and so he's there and he baptizes Jesus which didn't really make a whole lot of sense to John in the moment. He's like well I'm baptizing people who know that they're sinners and you're perfect or whatever. So he baptizes Jesus Jesus says you've got to do this to fulfill all righteousness so he does that but then that same John that baptizes Jesus, he sees him. And here's what, here's what John the Baptist says about Jesus when he sees him. The next day, this is John uh, chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, again, if you've spent enough time in a church setting, you've probably heard that term before, Lamb of God. And you sing songs about the Lamb of God, Jesus, Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Anybody know that jam? All right, There are these songs about the Lamb of God. But you need to understand, when, when John first, first spoke these words, the audience must have been incredibly perplexed. Why are you calling some guy a Lamb of God? Because the people understood the purpose of the lamb. The lamb is the sacrificial animal. You pick a perfect lamb without defect, and you have that lamb slaughtered. We need lambs to slaughter because we're imperfect. Why would God need a sacrifice? God's perfect. God doesn't need a lamb. What are you talking about, John, Lamb of God? What kind of sense does this make? It didn't make a lot of sense in the moment, but it was profound. The lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. And so Jesus, he executes his his earthly ministry, and he performs miracles, and he teaches the people about God, and he explains this thing that we call the gospel, the good news. He explains this thing that was a mystery to so many at that time and continues to be a mystery to people to this day, this thing that he was going to do, that he was going to give up his life for people, that, that he was going to create a way for people to receive eternal life and forgiveness of sins. And so he explains all this, and we arrive at that night of the Last Supper. And that Last Supper, that's what we call, but really what Jesus and his disciples were doing. They were gathering together to celebrate the ritual of Passover, the ritual, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it was a time where they were supposed to sit together, and they would break bread together, and they would say, hey, remember when we had to make bread like this, when our ancestors had to make bread like this in Egypt because they were preparing for their redemption? They were preparing to be rescued, and they would talk about that. And they would have the cup, and they'd they'd talk about the blood of the lamb. Like, hey, remember how God had our ancestors paint the blood of the lamb on the doorposts so that we would be saved by the blood of a lamb? And that's what they were supposed to be talking about at the Passover. But Jesus changes things. Jesus leads this this Passover. He leads this, this festival, this Feast of Unleavened Bread. And he goes off script. He says things that you weren't supposed to say. And he makes this about something new. You know, the old thing that they were supposed to we were supposed to be celebrating how God saved us from Egypt and the blood of the Lamb and all that, but but Jesus changes the meaning. He changes the purpose behind this ritual. He makes it something new. You've got um, some scripture in your bulletin that Brindy read for us. This takes place at the Last Supper. It's Luke chapter twenty two. In your bulletin, it begins with verse 19. I'm going to start at verse 14 to give you a little bit of context to what Jesus said. It says, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them saying, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. What did they think when he said those words? What did the disciples think? What he, no, 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 no. This isn't about you, Jesus. This is about you now God saved us from Egypt and God, saved, God rescued us from slavery and now you're, you're taking this bread and you're making it about you? That's exactly what he was doing. This is about me now. When you do this from this point forward, when you celebrate this ritual, when you observe this holiday, when you celebrate this, do this in remembrance of me. This is my body, and I'm breaking it for you. Verse 20, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant. Hang on. What? Can you put yourself there? Can you put yourself at the Last Supper? I mean, imagine what the disciples, their response to that. Hang on, hang on, hang on. We've been talking about this new covenant thing for hundreds of years. Did, we, did I hear Jesus correctly? Is he saying that this is the new covenant? It's exactly what Jesus was saying. You've heard about this thing. You've wondered about this thing. Jeremiah told you about this way back when. I'm telling you what this is, the new covenant. I mean, the, the weight of this. My goodness, this is it, the new covenant, the new arrangement, the new deal that we've been talking about and wondering about and waiting for. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so Jesus changes the meaning behind the ritual of the Passover, and he makes it about what he is about to do for the people. And yet it still has its history in in the Passover and, and how God all along has been trying to reveal this plan to us, reveal this great sacrifice to us. So he explains these words to his disciples tells them to celebrate this ritual, observe this, this Eucharist, this Lord's Supper, this communion, and remember Him. That's what we are to do. And He says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. And some people wonder, well, who's the you that Jesus is talking to? So let me answer that question. The you that Jesus is talking to is you. Jesus speaks these words to you. You know, we just celebrated Thanksgiving a few days ago, and one of the things I'm thankful for is that we didn't have to host. That was nice, not having to host, but we have hosted in the past. We've hosted a couple times. I say we, but it was really Holly hosting, and and I was there too, right? And so we've hosted... But one of the things that I did do as Holly prepared the food is I set the tables for everybody, try to make a space for everyone. And that first year, I think we were, we were you know, you, I say we were pregnant. You were pregnant with, <laughs> with our first child, and I'm moving the furniture, and I'm trying to, okay, who said yes? Who said they're going to be here? And I'm making a place for everybody at the table. And we even made little name cards. Anybody do that when you host? Make a little name card? So I'm folding over the 3 by 5 card. and I said, Holly, you've got to write the names because my my handwriting's too sloppy. So, anyway, we made, so we were sure to have a place for everybody at the table. There's a place for you at the Lord's table. When Jesus says, "I did this for you," He's talking to you. When Jesus says, "This is my body for you," He's talking to you. It's as if Jesus took a little three by five index card, folded it in half, and wrote your name. Put a place at the Lord's table just for you. The next day, the next day, Jesus is crucified. And the only disciple that made it to the foot of the cross that we know about is John. And so John is there. And I wonder, as John looked at the body of Jesus, the body of his, his rabbi, his master, his Lord, his friend, as he looked at the body of Jesus and saw the flesh being torn from his body, did he remember the words Jesus spoke the night before? This is my body broken for you. And as he saw the blood of Jesus drip down his face, did he remember the words Jesus spoke the night before? This is my blood shed for you. Did it click with him? Did it make sense? And now as we, as we read the Bible... And those of us here at Hope, we talk about this thing a whole lot, this thing that we simply call the gospel, right? This thing of Jesus dying on the cross in our place, this thing of Jesus sacrificing himself, this thing of Father God sacrificing his son. We talk about this so often, and it's a mystery that's supposed to be revealed. We're supposed to understand it, and it is revealed to some degree, but there's still something that's, that's unfathomable about what Jesus has done for us. And I think Jesus knew that this would be tough for us to receive this gift of eternal life. I think he knew that. I think that's why so much of the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, is dedicated to either directly or indirectly explaining this gospel, explaining what Jesus did on the cross, how he paid back a debt to God that we owed, how he did something for us that we could not do for ourselves. He did this thing. He died. He sacrificed himself. But that's been God all along since Adam and Eve God intervenes to solve the problems that we create, solve the situation that we cannot resolve for ourselves, to offer us eternal life. It is a gift that Jesus extends to each one of you, to each one of us. You know, it is the Christmas season as we're entering into this, and you've heard this saying, it's better to give than to receive, and that's probably true, at least most of the time, it's better to give than to receive, but, but it's also, it can be more difficult to receive, can't it? Isn't it tough to receive something? I remember years ago, I was um, with a, a, a church group, and we all went to see a show at Sight and Sound. You know Sight and Sound is that place in Lancaster, it's that theater where they do Christian shows. So, so we were a group of Christians doing a very Christian-y thing. Anyway, so we drove to Sight and Sound, and we carpooled together, and we, we drove after the show. We, we, we came back, and so you know, I had... Um, I had a sweet little old lady in the backseat of the car, and so we'd finished. We were back in the parking lot, and she tries to give me some gas money. <laughs> and I said, no, 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 don't do it. She said, no, and said, no, no, And we went back for, like, probably a solid minute. And then she looked at me and said, you know, at a certain point, it's rude to accept. Like, okay, Grandma, all right. You know? <laughs> what I want to say, well, at a certain point, it's rude not to take it back, right? But I accepted I accepted that gift. It was difficult to accept. I said, okay, you had a point. I'll accept that gift. But when it comes to this gift that, that, that Jesus offers to each one of you, to each one of us, it can be difficult to accept that gift for a number of reasons. Sometimes it's just a matter of pride and humility and it's like I don't know what you're, what you're offering and sometimes it's a matter of confusion. I don't understand what this gift is but whatever it is, I don't think I need it. But sometimes it's a matter of, of being afraid of well if I say yes to this, if I receive this gift, how is it going to change me? And sometimes it's a matter of feeling not good enough. If you have an understanding of of what Jesus has done for us to just feel like, well, I'm not worthy of that. And you know what? When it comes to Jesus, that's not an issue for him. It's not about being worthy. That's why we call it a gift and not compensation. This isn't something we earn. This is a gift from God. It is the gift of forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. And I think one of the reasons that that the Lord gives us this ritual to celebrate is to help us understand the gospel. You know, it's difficult, and we talk to our kids about receiving Jesus, and you say yes to Jesus, and you receive Jesus in your heart, but it's, there's nothing to hold on to, there's nothing tactile to touch, but, but here in this ritual, Jesus gives us a very visceral experience where Jesus says to each one of us, take this bread, and we take something physically, and we physically dip it in a cup, and we physically internalize it. It's a wonderful, powerful, tangible visceral ritual (laughs) that we experience together. You all will have an opportunity to receive communion today, and as you do, take that bread. Remember, it's Jesus who offers it to you, and it's not just a piece of bread. He's offering you his body. He's offering you. It's not just Welch's grape juice, which is what we serve. It's not just that. Just remember, he's offering you his blood. He's offering you the gift of eternal life, that you could not earn if you tried. It's not about that; it's a gift that Jesus offers to each one of us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you've done for us. And those words, "thank you," they don't feel like enough. They're not enough, Lord. You know what you've done for us. This gift—it's—it's—it's it's, it's unfathomable. It's indescribable. Um, but we just thank you for what you've done. Father God, we realize that this sacrifice is multi-layered. This is the sacrifice of a man giving up his own life. This is the sacrifice, sacrifice of a father giving up the life of his son. And we just thank you for what you've done for us. And Jesus, we thank you for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Father, for all those who are about to receive communion, prepare our hearts. Prepare our hearts for this experience. Prepare our hearts to receive your body and your blood. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.